Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be exploring craving is the problem, what is the solution. This is chapter 16 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. And in this chapter, we explore the primary problem that Gautama Buddha discovered about the mind and what we should be understanding in terms of training the mind to this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's these three poisons that we've been talking about in this group learning program that is the three problems of why the mind is discontent and inhibiting us from attaining this mental state of enlightenment. But the primary problem that the Buddha discovered, which is causing the discontent mind, is craving. So it's really important that we understand what is craving and explore that really deeply and then talk about how to solve that problem, how to ensure that we're eliminating this craving from the mind so that we can get to a content and peaceful mind. Because it's only when we understand craving and then actually work to train the mind to eliminate it will we ultimately be able to attain enlightenment. So let's discuss what is craving in detail. And we're even going to go through several examples of some potential things that the mind could be craving or holding on to and what problems those cravings can produce, what kind of harmful experiences could one experience should these cravings exist in the mind on an individual level as well as a societal level. So let's first really clearly describe what is craving. What craving is, is craving is a mental longing with a strong eagerness where the mind pulls in a certain direction and it's craving, it's desiring, it's attached. It has certain expectations or certain wants. And when the mind has these longing and this strong eagerness, it's going to be discontent. Whether that's a longing and a strong eagerness for a partner, for like a romantic partner, like a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband and wife, if the mind is pulling in that direction and it has this longing and this craving, and you don't have a boyfriend, girlfriend, or significant other, but the mind wants it so badly, then the mind's going to be discontent. If you have a partner 
and you have certain expectations or certain wants, certain cravings, desires, certain attachments, mental longing with a strong eagerness of certain things that you want that partner to do or not to do, then the mind is going to at some point be discontent, meaning it will experience anger or frustration or irritation, annoyance, maybe guilt or shame, fears, loneliness, boredom, shyness, sadness, any of these discontent feelings and others will be produced whenever the mind has this longing with a strong eagerness. So you can end up having this with particular people like a boyfriend or girlfriend or life partner. You can have this for particular possessions like a car or a particular type of car can have it for a job or for an income. You can have it with your children. Some people really crave either having a child or once they have children, they might have a certain longing with a strong eagerness for their child to be a certain way and do a certain thing. And whenever you have this on any topic anywhere, the mind is going to be discontent. So it's the Buddha's primary problem that he sees with the mind, which is inhibiting the mind from being content. It's only when we eliminate this craving, this desire, this attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, the expectations that we put on others or we put on ourselves, the wanting, all of this is going to lead to discontent mind. So we need to be able to clearly identify what these cravings are in the mind that we are holding on to so that we can then eliminate them through training the mind. By being able to identify them and eliminate them, then the mind can more closely and more gradually attain this mental state of enlightenment which will ultimately create a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy because it's not holding on, it's not wanting, it's not craving, it doesn't have all these desires, this attachment, these expectations, this longing with a strong eagerness where the mind is just pushing itself, wanting certain things or not wanting certain things. Because then the mind can be calm, it can be peaceful. But if we don't train the mind and we're not aware of this problem, the mind's going to keep craving and it's going to keep wanting, it's going to keep seeking, it's going to keep looking for satisfaction outside of itself. Never being able to just fully looking inward and realizing that it's that craving, that constant pursuit of outward searching that is causing the discontent mind, the dissatisfied mind, because it always wants something that it doesn't have rather than just being content with what it already has. So let me just pause here for a moment and see if there's any questions on what craving is, what is a desire, what is an attachment, how expectations and wants are essentially just other names for craving, desire, attachment. So I would like to just see if we have any questions in our virtual classroom or anywhere else on social media. Hi, David, no questions at the moment. Okay, in that case, let's move on and talk about some very specific cravings that 
you may either have currently or have had in the past, or if you see these things cropping up in your life, you know what it's causing and why you don't want to cultivate this in the mind. This is from chapter 16 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. Here, I put together a table which provides you some potential cravings and then some potential harmful effects. This table here that lists, for example, automobiles as a craving, it doesn't mean if you have an automobile that it's necessarily a craving because it's not about whether you have an automobile or you don't have an automobile that makes it a craving, desire, or an attachment. It's all about how the mind relates to this object. So if you don't have an automobile at all, okay, fine. You know, you don't have an automobile, so you know that the mind is, you know, maybe fine with that. Or maybe you don't have an automobile, but yet the mind is craving it and it wants it so bad. And the mind just feels like if I get this automobile, this is the happiness that I'm searching for and I want this automobile and that's what's going to make me happy, right? If the mind thinks this way, then essentially the mind is attached. The mind has this longing or this craving, this desire, this strong eagerness for an automobile. And the mind oftentimes convinces itself, if I just get this automobile, I will be happy and that's all I really need. But what happens is the mind ultimately will potentially attain this automobile and that happiness is there for a period of time, but it's only temporary and it wears off because the condition of happiness is based on acquiring this automobile. So the mind's happiness is coming from the source of the automobile, but then that's impermanent in this impermanent condition of the automobile wears off and then the mind is right back where it started from, where it's not happy anymore. So that's why happiness isn't the goal here. The happiness is a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind. Now, if you don't have an automobile and you're perfectly content with that and you've decided, I just don't need an automobile in my life. I'll take a taxi, I'll take public transportation, I'll walk, I'll ride a bike, whatever it is, then this is not a craving for you. But if you don't have one and you're constantly craving one, then you need to get your mind to a point where you no longer have that craving. It doesn't mean you don't pursue attaining an automobile as a goal or as an objective. It just means you have to eliminate that push, that drive, that strong eagerness to attain this automobile, thinking that that's all I really need in order to create happiness in my life. Because I can tell you that if the mind has that craving and it gets that automobile, it's still not going to be perfectly peaceful and content because then it's going to want another automobile or it's going to want something else or something else or something else. Now, if you already have an automobile, you have to look and see, is there craving there? You know, is the mind always kind of searching and looking for this automobile to bring some type of pleasure, right? It's, so it's not whether you have an automobile or not. It's all about how the mind 
relates to this object of an automobile? Is it wanting to keep this automobile so clean, any little speck of dirt somebody leaves in the automobile, is that causing you to be frustrated, right? So if you hold this automobile really tightly with this longing and this strong eagerness, holding on to it, trying to keep it in this pristine condition because the mind isn't aware of impermanence, then every little speck of dust or dirt or any little ding or scratch on the automobile, the mind's going to be discontent. Doesn't mean you can't keep your car clean. Doesn't mean you can't keep it scratch free. It just means that in order to eliminate the craving, you need to understand that this automobile is in fact impermanent and it's going to have some dirt sometime. It's going to get a little scratch. It's going to get a little ding. The paint's going to potentially fade. The tires are going to need to be replaced because this automobile is impermanent. Whereas if the mind holds it too tightly and too strongly, then it's going to be a source of frustration, irritation, annoyance, or maybe even anger. So these lists here that we're going to go through, it's not to say that just because you have an automobile, that is a craving. It's about understanding that any of these things in this column of craving are potential opportunities for the mind to have craving, desire, or attachment, or expectations, or wants, this longing with a strong eagerness. And if the mind is allowed to do that, if you allow the mind to wrap around this and hold it too tightly, then there's going to be discontentedness. And if somebody was attached to automobiles, what you're going to see is they're going to be obsessive about keeping it clean. They're going to be discontent if it gets any little dirt or scratch or ding. Uh, you might even see people collect lots of automobiles and they might have many, 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 many automobiles and it's just one more automobile, one more automobile, one more automobile and they're just constantly collecting more and more and more automobiles thinking if I just get one more it will create happiness for the mind, but one isn't enough, five isn't enough, 10 isn't enough, 20 isn't enough, and they just keep on collecting and adding more and more and more. And it's not to say that every single person who collects automobiles is necessarily attached to them. It's all about how the mind relates to these things. And if there is craving, desire, or attachment for automobiles, some of the harmful effects that you may experience are things like excessive work. So somebody who isn't content with the Toyota and has to have the BMW, they're not content with the BMW, they have to have the Lamborghini. They're not content with that, they need a Bentley. They're not content with that, they just keep having to increase the expenses in order to either improve upon their one automobile or collecting multiple automobiles, this will create excessive work and craving kind of money or wealth. So eliminating this craving for the automobile and either choosing to have an automobile or not, and then if you do have one, just have whatever automobile that works for your budget, or if you don't have an automobile, just be content with that then the mind won't drive itself to work, 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 work all the time. It can be 
peaceful, calm, serene, and content because it has what it needs in this life. So if you have craving for an automobile, it's going to create an excessive amount of work of keeping it clean, keeping it scratch free, working to accumulate money to buy a new car every so often or what have you. So by having transportation, which is the real goal here, and finding what works for you, then you will be able to be more calm and content with that where you're not driving the mind to work excessively. And then likewise, there can also be ego. Sometimes when people make certain purchases about a particular car or having multiple cars, it could be because it somehow makes the ego feel good to have not just a Toyota, but a BMW and a Mercedes and a Bentley and a Lamborghini. It's not to say everybody who has all these different cars are doing it because of ego, but if somebody has craving for automobiles, there can be excessive ego that those automobiles are feeding. And when we eliminate that ego, we eliminate the craving for automobiles, then we also eliminate this unending need to actually work because it's the craving for the automobile that's causing the mind to keep working and working and working and it's creating more and more and more ego. Also, if somebody is spending all this excessive time working just to acquire automobiles or taking a lot of time to keep their automobiles in a certain pristine condition, then perhaps they're not spending time with other people that could be more beneficial time with their children or their partners or doing other activities that are more peaceful. Uh, so this craving for automobiles can kind of drive the mind to move in that direction rather than spending time with those close to us. And then of course, if there's lots of craving for automobiles and we all crave that and everybody has to have an automobile, then we have all these automobiles all over the world. We have all this steel production, all this oil, all this gasoline, all of this pollution, where what we could have if we lived in a more generous society where we share, you can actually have less and less automobiles, which has less of an effect on the climate. So if there's this craving to have automobiles just because everyone else has an automobile, then more and more and more and more automobiles will be produced, which causes pollution throughout the world. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't have automobiles. It's just to say that if there's constant craving in this direction, there's going to be certain results because of that. And if we look in the world today and we look at the pollution around the world, we know that a good amount of that is coming from automobiles, where in fact, a lot of us could be very well taken care of and satisfied if we shared transportation, either have one car for two or three people, or perhaps take public transportation. Cars are starting to become less important in society today where when I grew up, you know, you kind of had to get an automobile just to feel like you've somehow made it or you're successful. Where nowadays people are recognizing that ownership over an automobile, there's actually benefits to not owning an automobile. So we need to train the mind to recognize that just because everyone else has an automobile 
or certain people have a collection of automobiles, that that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's going to work for us. We need to make the best choices in our life of what it's going to take in order to sustain our life and our livelihood and not necessarily attach happiness to something like an automobile, that we can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy with an automobile or without one. And finding where is that middle, and everybody's middle is different. Some people maybe need to own 10 automobiles because maybe they're running a business and their business requires to have 10 automobiles. And that's the middle for them. Where other people, they might not need an automobile at all because they live in a more populated area that has lots of public transportation. They may not ever need to own an automobile. And that's the middle for them. So that's why part of these teachings, it's about non-judgment because we shouldn't judge somebody just because they have an automobile or don't have one or if they're collecting 10 or 20 different automobiles. This path of eliminating craving and finding the middle is going to look different for each person. Each individual is going to need to make personal choices for themselves about where that middle is. But automobiles are one particular thing that could potentially allow the mind to have craving, desire, attachment. So you need to be aware of that. And if you're not attached to an automobile, then if you have one or you don't, you can be peaceful. Or if you do have an automobile and it gets damaged, you'll be fine. You'll, you just know that, okay, this is impermanence and I need to go get it fixed. But if the mind is just latching onto it, any little scratch or any little accident, the mind can be discontent. I mean, you can actually see people sometimes cry when they see their automobile gets a scratch or gets into an accident. They can literally be crying and upset and angered and frustrated because the mind is holding on to this automobile so tightly. So you need to train the mind to be able to have possessions like automobiles and others, but not allow the mind to hold on to it so tightly. Okay, so this is just one particular example of something that the mind can potentially have craving for. The second one here is children. If there's craving for children, the mind can also be discontent. So if someone doesn't have children, and they crave children, they have a longing, a strong eagerness to have children, but they maybe don't have a life partner, or maybe they do have a life partner, but it's just not working out where they can have children. Then if the mind still has this longing and this strong eagerness, then the mind's going to be discontent because it doesn't have children. So we need to be able to train the mind if you don't have children where's your middle, right? Your middle is either I'm not going to have children because I can't have children, or maybe you decide to adopt a child and that's something that you choose to do. But where that middle is, is completely up to you. But if there's this longing and the strong eagerness for children, then the mind's going to be discontent. And then if you do have children and you have this longing and this strong eagerness for certain things that your children should do, certain expectations, certain requirements that you have of your children, and you try to control them, or you try to get them to take certain decisions that you're making for them, 
instead of them making their own decisions, then the mind is going to be discontent because there's never going to be a situation where your child accepts 100% of your advice. But as parents, we need to provide advice and guidance and suggestions to our children and allow them to make good, wholesome decisions in their life. So if we don't have children and we crave them, the mind's going to be discontent. If we have children and then we craved our single life when we didn't have children and now we kind of feel like we're stuck with this child, now the mind's discontent because it has a longing for being single and it really didn't want this child to begin with. Or if once we have children, if we have a certain longing and expectations and wants that we have for our children, then there's going to be discontentedness. So it would be normal for a parent to have certain goals and certain objectives and certain interests. You know, you would like your child to talk polite. You would like them to be kind. You would like them to go to school. You would like them to potentially get a good job some point. If they're going to have a partner in life, to pick a good partner that they're going to be able to live a happy life with. All of these things and others are good interests, good objectives, good goals that a parent can help a child along to make those choices. But what happens sometimes in life is the parent tries to control the child and tries to pick all the schools or pick the clothes that the children should wear or pick the partner of who the child should pick to be their husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend, tries to dictate to the child where they should live and what they should do. And in all these situations, it's going to be uncomfortable. The children aren't going to like it. The parents aren't going to like it. And it's going to cause discontentedness in the relationship. So as parents, we need to get to a point where we can comfortably suggest certain things to our children when they're open to it, and they may or may not take our advice. And if they take our advice, that's fine. And if they don't take our advice, that's fine too. But sometimes what happens is if the child doesn't take the parent's advice, the parent feels discontent. They feel sad. They feel angered or frustrated or irritated. And what can happen is the parent can push and push and push and push and try to get the child to do what the parent wants because the parent feels like they know what's best. And this is going to cause discontentedness in the relationship. And what we need to realize is that our children need to go through the same learning experiences as we had. And just because we might be able to see what's ahead of them and what's in their future if they make a certain decision, Sometimes we need to just let the child make that decision so that they can learn for themselves, so they can see the truth for themselves. You can guide them. You can give them suggestions. You can give them insight that you experienced based on your life. But when we start trying to force our expectations or force our way of being on our child, that's where it's going to become very problematic sabotaging the relationship and causing discontentness in the relationship where sometimes it can damage the relationship long term. So we need to be comfortable with either having children or not, 
finding that middle, whatever it is. Not everyone needs to have a child. Not everybody wants to have a child, and that's okay. And if people are putting pressure on you to have children, but you've chosen that you're not interested, then you need to be content with that decision. But if you have this longing for a child and you don't have them, it's going to cause discontentness. And then when you ultimately have children, you need to learn how to hold this relationship almost like a delicate flower in your hands where you kind of support it and you encourage it and you help it grow. Because if you hold it too tightly, it's going to crush the flower and it's gonna crush the relationship that you would like to have with your child. So you kind of have to hold it somewhat lightly and support it and encourage it along the way, okay? So children can be a potential source of craving either to have them or not have them. And then once you have them, you can create cravings around certain things. The third one here is clothing and jewelry. Sometimes people have certain cravings for clothing or jewelry. And this can create problems in life too. If you have a certain craving for excessive amount of clothing or jewelry or particular brands, it can cause you to work excessively. It can also support an ego. It can cause you to be very apprehensive about your clothing. One little stitch that's out of place, the mind can be very discontent with that. Or somebody can take a lot of time to get ready, right? They put on two, three, four, five different clothes and they're not ready to go outside until everything's perfect, right? This is a mind that has a longing or a strong eagerness for certain clothing or jewelry or a certain appearance once they go outside, that the mind feels like everything has to be just a certain way. And if things aren't in this special certain way, then the mind can't go outside and be peaceful in any and all situations. It's craving certain types of clothing, certain looks, it's craving certain jewelry, and this can cause the mind to be discontent. Likewise, on the next one with fame, some people really have a certain craving for fame and to be noticed in public. People want to be a celebrity or they want to have worldwide attention. And if somebody's mind has this and they don't have that fame, then the mind's going to be discontent. And oftentimes what happens is the mind craves something and it thinks that that's what it needs to be happy. And once it acquires it, it's happy for a period of time. But then once it's there and experiences that lifestyle, then the mind actually doesn't like it anymore. It wants something else. You've probably heard of certain people who at one time in their life craved celebrity status or they've craved fame and the mind pursued and pursued and pursued and pursued and then once they acquired that for a period of time after so many years it kind of wears off and they don't like it anymore they don't like being around so many people they don't like having all the bodyguards they don't like the screaming people when they go out in public there's people that actually think at one time in their life that they crave this celebrity status and they work really hard to get it. And then once they get there, 
that feels happy for a period of time, but then it wears off and now they don't like it anymore. This is how the unenlightened mind works, is it craves something, it'll work and work and work to get it, and then once it gets it, oftentimes that happiness wears off and then it craves something else, sometimes completely opposite of what the initial craving was. And now it doesn't want this fame anymore. It wants to be kind of just a regular average person again. But at that point, it's kind of too late. And this is how we can get ourselves into problematic situations because we're making decisions based on these cravings. And one craving after another after another, and the mind keeps pursuing these cravings. And because the mind keeps changing and these cravings keep changing, we can actually work ourselves into problematic situations in life where we find ourselves kind of backed up in a corner and we've created a life for ourselves that we're not necessarily interested in anymore. It doesn't serve the purpose of what we're trying to accomplish in the world. So now that we've covered these four, let me just stop here and see if we have any questions so far on any of these. Yes, we have a few questions here. So Jaroslav asks, are craving and addiction the same thing? Or could you talk about addiction according to Buddha's teachings? Sure, that's actually on the next screen, but we can talk about it now. An addiction like a substance or an addiction to, like some people are addicted to clothing or addicted to jewelry. Some people are hoarders, right? They'll hoard clothing or hoard jewelry or automobiles, or even children. There's some people that just keep having lots and lots and lots of children, or they adopt a lot of people. And again, there's no judgment here because the mind needs to do whatever it does. But these addictions or these either substance or possessions or certain things like this, an addiction is a craving. So if the mind needs cigarettes or alcohol or certain substances that cause heedlessness or if the mind's addicted to gambling or possessions like clothing or jewelry or things like this these addictions are a craving a desire an attachment a mental longing with a strong eagerness and it causes discontentedness because in an example where someone is maybe hoarding clothing right? And the mind has this longing and a strong eagerness. Oftentimes, this person will acquire a certain number of garments or clothing, and the mind feels like it's happy. And then that wears off. And then it wants another thing and another thing and another thing. And it keeps shopping and shopping and shopping. And what people find themselves in is they find themselves in extreme debt sometimes. Credit cards uh, really maxed out or a lot of debt in terms of borrowing money from people and they have closets and closets and closets full of clothes but they can only ever wear one set of clothes at a time but they might have you know 600 different outfits and the mind's never content you know this problem might have started where they just went out and bought one piece of clothing a week and then it was two pieces a week and then it was 10 and then it was like five in a day, and then it's 10 in a day, and it just keeps increasing. It's the same thing with substances. You know, people start out with, you know, one line of cocaine, and that's fine for like a month or two. 
and then it goes to you know two every month and then it just keeps increasing because that same amount of cocaine isn't satisfying enough to the mind and eventually the person gets into a habit where maybe they're doing three four five six lines of cocaine in one day so this is where this primary problem that the buddha discovered it's the same exact problem whether it's cocaine whether it's clothing whether it's automobiles or any of this other stuff that we're looking at children fame food any craving is going to cause discontentedness oftentimes we look at a problem of ingesting cocaine and an interest to be famous as two different things this craving to be famous and doing cocaine we look at them as two different things because on the surface they look like two different things one is cocaine and one is is fame but inside the mind what's going on with the mind and what's causing this discontentness it's actually exactly the same problem exactly the same problem it's craving desire attachment this mental longing with a strong eagerness and the mind has to be gradually trained away from these things it doesn't mean that you can't be famous it doesn't mean that all famous people have craving it doesn't mean that just because you go buy clothing that you have craving it's all a matter of finding that middle and where's the mind going to be peaceful calm serene and content with joy so if i'm spending let's say five thousand dollars a month on clothing but i only make two thousand a month but i keep spending every month five thousand a month this shows that the mind has craving and this isn't sustainable the mind is craving more than it actually has and then also if i don't have any clothing at all and i walk around naked that's not uh, realistic either so that's why the mind has to come to the middle same thing with some of these substances like things like marijuana marijuana yes it can be used for heedlessness to get high to kind of escape reality but it can also be used for medical issues as well and it's only the person who's taking it that really truly knows what the real intention is here now the medical problems that marijuana is used for now things like seizures right it's very obvious to see that someone has you know 20 seizures a day epileptic seizures or some other seizure and when they take this cbd oil in the mouth that they don't have any seizures for six months you can see very clearly this is a medical use but if somebody says i feel stressed or i feel sad or i feel frustrated and i'm smoking this marijuana in order to not feel stressed this isn't a real medical purpose because stress and anger and frustration and sadness is actually caused by craving so if somebody just continues to go down this path of using marijuana as the way to somehow alleviate this stress or this anger the mind is having this craving for this substance 
it's going to keep having the craving for the substance and it's never going to get to a point where it's permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy naturally. So it's only when somebody comes across these teachings and they realize that through learning these teachings, they can actually eliminate these substances and they don't need alcohol, they don't need cocaine, they don't need marijuana to eliminate stress and sadness that they can actually train the mind away from those individual cravings which are usually put in place because of other cravings. So for example, if I have a craving for fame and I'm not famous and I have this craving for fame and I just want to be famous and I crave it so badly, I have this longing and this strong eagerness, but because I can't get it, I'm sad, I'm frustrated, I'm angry. Now the mind might move to marijuana or cocaine or alcohol because this craving for fame is causing sadness and frustration. And now the person's mind sees the only way to get that temporary happiness that I'm seeking over here with fame is to start using this substance, this cocaine or marijuana or this alcohol, for example. If the mind is allowed to do that and you go down that path, it's not really solving the core problem, which is the craving, the longing, the mental eagerness, the strong eagerness for this fame. So the mind oftentimes has multiple, multiple, multiple cravings in so many different directions and it can't attain those cravings. It's unsustainable and the mind becomes sad and frustrated and then it reverts to substances because that's the way that it can ingest the substance and for three hours or six hours or one day, it can feel this temporary happiness. But the problem is, is that's impermanent. It goes away and now the mind is still sad. So now it needs more of the substance and more of the substance and more of the substance. So all of these problems that the mind is experiencing with discontentedness, it's coming from the same root cause, which is craving. And that's why the Buddha discovered this as the primary problem in the mind. And we need to eradicate it. And these examples here are just some of the potential cravings that one might have and will cause the mind to be discontent. We have a question from Marcus. Is it that we want something or is it just the feeling that we think it will bring? It's the mind is looking for happiness. Happiness is not a permanent feeling. Happiness is impermanent, but yet people are driven in society for the pursuit of happiness. They want happiness and everyone's pursuing it, but people don't realize that it's temporary because happiness is always based on something else, some condition. So the mind could be craving happiness. That's another craving. You see it here in the chart that the mind can actually crave happiness. But because of that craving for happiness, it never gets it because it's never permanent. So the mind has this outward seeking, this looking outside of itself 
for this happiness and it wants that happiness and it thinks if I just have this fame, then my mind will be happy. But then eventually if it gets that fame, then once it's famous, it has some other craving and it's still not happy because this happiness from the fame wears off. And then it's not happy with this fame. It wants more money or it wants cars or it wants this or it wants that. So the mind just constantly keeps craving, whether it's craving happiness or something else, it's going to just keep craving and craving and craving for something. And it's not until we train it to eliminate this craving and pursue things in life as a goal or an objective or an interest, but the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, whether it gets this thing or it doesn't. Because if we keep attaching our permanent content mind to this object of our affection, then we can never just be content by itself. It's always looking for this outward external thing. And that external thing is not always going to be there because it's impermanent. So the mind is holding on and thinking that this external thing just one more, just one more, just one more thing. And it's going to create this lasting happiness. But it doesn't work that way because the mind is still searching outside of itself. Also, just to reflect on something you said earlier, David, that in a sense, pursuing fame or pursuing some kind of illicit substance, we see them as different, we think of them as different, but actually in some sense we're trying to scratch the same itch with both of those pursuits exactly just one mind is attached to fame one mind is attached to something else and i think that can be a really helpful realization because we think of things in quite qualitative terms but actually you know there's only right five senses in the mind you know there's only really you know pleasant unpleasant and feelings that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant and we sometimes can convince ourselves to thinking there is this wide array and variety of things and in a way there is but actually when you break it down you know it's just another sound it's just another taste it's just another thought yeah you know what happens is the mind just constantly craves so when we were a child we just knew that if we have that bicycle if our parents bought us that bicycle it would be all we need in the world. And we just tried to convince our parents to get us that bicycle. And then we got that bicycle and the mind was pretty happy for a while. And then all of a sudden it wasn't the bicycle. It was maybe a motorbike or a motorcycle or a car. And the mind craved that. And it just knew if we got that car, we just got that motorbike, everything would be perfect in our life. And then we get that. And then the mind's happy for a while. But then that wears off. And now the mind wants not just a car, it wants a BMW. And now you push and push and push and push and push. And then you get that. And the mind's feeling prideful. The ego is supported. You feel like pretty good for a while. But then that wears off. And then the mind wants something else because it realizes at the end of the day, it's just a car. And what happens is the mind just keeps looking for more and more and more. And you can look at this as income, right? I remember, you know, when I was growing up, minimum wage was $3.25 an hour, you know, and I just knew if I could find a job for $6 an hour, I would make it and I'd be rich. And that's all I needed was a job that made $6 an hour. 
and then you get that and then the mind's happy for a period of time but then your spending habits increase and then you want ten dollars an hour and then 15 and then something else or whether it's a salary you know your mind just keeps wanting 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 instead of creating a life where it can be peaceful calm serene and content with whatever it's got it doesn't mean you can't aspire for a higher salary it doesn't mean you can't have a goal or an objective to do that but it just means if you latch on the happiness and think that that's what it's going to take to get the happiness that means your happiness is based on some condition i need to get the job that makes fifty thousand dollars a year if your mind is latching its happiness onto that then the mind still has craving and if you don't acquire this fifty thousand a year the mind's going to be discontent but even if you do acquire it it's going to be happy for a period of time but then because there's still craving there it's going to move the mark a little bit further ahead now it's going to want 60 or 70 and then it's going to work and work and work and work and work and work to try to get that rather than pursuing these things as a goal and an objective whereas if the mind has this unquenchable thirst for this increased salary then the decisions the person makes along the way are oftentimes motivated by that craving and they might not be the best decisions so if the mind just takes its time and it sets objectives for itself then it can make really good decisions along the way to make sure that it's building a nice strong stable life rather than just making kind of haphazard decisions just to get to the end goal because when we have these cravings oftentimes we pursue them at all costs all costs whether it means we sleep terrible hours whether we don't cultivate healthy relationships we don't spend time with our friends and our family we might damage the environment or do certain things in our life that we otherwise wouldn't have done if we didn't have this craving and oftentimes people get themselves into really problematic situations because they're allowing the craving to be the motivator that makes decisions in their lives and because they're making decisions off of that craving you can paint yourself into a corner and find out even once you attain that craving you might realize that it falls down and your life kind of falls apart because you were just making all these haphazard decisions just to get to that craving which is an illusion anyway you're never going to get peacefulness calmness contentedness with joy permanently when the mind latches on to these external things and then becomes motivated to only make decisions based on attaining those cravings and you'll find that you'll end up at the end of that line very unpleasant and very displeased because even if you acquire the craving once you get there that's going to wear off anyway yes really helpful point there as well and think about how pleasant feelings are also discontentedness whereas you see a lot of teachings maybe translate the Pali word into suffering but actually pursuing pleasant feelings can be very dangerous not least because they're impermanent but also because as you said we will pursue them at all costs and that can be very damaging 
Yes, that's right. So, you know, if we go back to the Four Noble Truths, that the second noble truth is that we cause our own discontent mind because of craving, desire, attachment. We have this outward searching, this outward longing with a strong eagerness. And the only way to eliminate that is the third noble truth, is eliminate the the longing and the strong eagerness. So the discontent mind that the Buddha describes is painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Those painful feelings are things like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, guilt, fears, shame. Those pleasant feelings are happiness, excitement, elation. Those feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant are things like loneliness or boredom or shyness, things like this. Well, if we use the word suffering, it describes those painful feelings pretty well right? Sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears. Those are pretty painful. But these feelings of happiness or excitement or elation, that's on the whole other side of the spectrum. And what most of us are driven to and what we're taught in life is that we should be pursuing happiness. And excitement is a good thing. And oftentimes when we meet friends or we see our children, we kind of go into this kind of excitement, either real excitement or sometimes people just do it because they think it's the polite thing to do. They'll just kind of act excited, right? But that's allowing the mind to go away from the middle that the Buddha was talking about. So if our mind is craving this happiness or it's moving in this direction of the pleasant feelings, then you're going to create discontentness for yourself because the mind keeps moving towards these pleasant feelings, either with substances that cause heedlessness or some other object of our affection. And when we either attain that object of affection and the mind's happy and feels pleasant for a period of time, but that wears off, or if we have a certain object of our affection and the mind doesn't attain it, then the mind's going to be discontent in that situation too. So what the Buddha is explaining here is he's explaining that anytime there's a mental longing with a strong eagerness, the mind's going to be discontent. Whether you attain that thing or you don't attain it, it's going to be discontent either way. Because even you attain it, that happiness, that pleasant feelings is only temporary. It's impermanent. And if you don't attain it, then the mind's going to be discontent there because it has this constant longing and strong eagerness that it has this outward searching, this object of affection that it's working towards. And it's just going to constantly be discontent until either it acquires it, and if it acquires it, then it's going to wear off anyway, or the mind stops longing for that particular thing. It stops having that strong eagerness But then it's going to switch and it's going to now have this other object of affection that it's now going to give up on this one. And now it's going to move to this one. And this is where you can see people in business or in personal life. They can just hop from thing to thing to thing to thing. They might pursue this one for a couple of months. It doesn't have the satisfaction or it doesn't happen as quickly enough for them as they thought. And they give up on it and then they move to something else. They do that one for six months or a year. It doesn't fulfill the mind the way that they thought it would. And then they switch to something else. 
or they pursue this one for two or three years, they get it, it feels good for a period of time, and then they give up on that and they move to something else. They can't really build any real depth of what they're working on in their life because their mind just keeps moving from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing and they can't really penetrate that particular field or that particular business or certain personal relationships. And the mind will oftentimes just jump around from thing to thing to thing to thing because it's this new object of affection. And in that situation, the mind can never be permanently peaceful because it's always looking for the next thing to grab onto. I have a question from Manal. She asks, have I created more webs of discontent and a more challenging path towards freeing the mind by choosing to have children and having a householder's life in general? Experientially, it's been very hard to separate my own path from the current responsibilities of raising wise and self-aware children. If you choose to have a family and children, you can still attain enlightenment in that lifestyle but you need to learn how to love without attachment and you need to learn how to eliminate this craving so with a family and children the mind has more opportunities to grab on to something and have craving and hold on to it so there's more opportunity there for that if you didn't have a family and you just lived by yourself as a single person there's still going to be things that the mind latches onto and craves. So the problem is essentially the same. This craving is the same in the mind. It's just that with a family, with a husband and children, there's deeper relationships there and there's extra things that you need to learn in order to train the mind how to be able to love without attachment. But even if you were single, you're still going to have friends and family in your life so you're still going to need to learn how to love without attachment in that situation as well so i wouldn't say that having a family or not having a family is necessarily good or bad because it's going to be different for every person and the more that you learn how to hold these relationships in a very delicate way without crushing them and putting too many expectations, the better. And in a household like that, you really need to have everybody learning and practicing these teachings because if mom is understanding how to love without attachment, but everyone else isn't, and everybody else is kind of defining love as attachment, then they're gonna wanna be around you all the time, every little thing that you do, they're going to be want to be with you. And then when you're not around, they're going to be lonely. They're going to be sad. They're going to be crying. So if one person in the household is learning and practicing these teachings and the others aren't, this can lead to a discontent household because the mind of one person is learning and pursuing this path, but the others aren't. So this was one of my posts in the recent Facebook group where I was talking about looking for life partners that are learning and practicing these teachings because you're going to find that the way of thinking in the household can really shift in a very good direction by everybody learning and practicing these teachings. And by doing it, it's going to create a more peaceful, calm, serene, and content household with joy 
because everybody's supporting each other and encouraging each other along this path. But everybody's different. Some people in this world will never have children, never have a life partner, and they will be able to have a very peaceful, common, serene, content life and ultimately attain enlightenment. But there's some people that will never have a life partner, never have children, and they're still gonna have anger, frustration, irritation because they haven't trained the mind to enlightenment. And then you can have people that have children in a, a lifestyle with a partner and they can train their mind to enlightenment. And you can have people that have a partner and children that never attain enlightenment based on how they learn and practice the teachings. So it's not whether you have children in a family or not, it's all a matter of how closely do you decide to learn and practice the teachings and implement those into your daily life and then try to encourage the other people in your household to also learn and practice these teachings because then you guys will all work together as a cohesive group to learn and practice the teachings together. Because one of the most challenging things is for somebody who's practicing non-attachment and practicing these teachings when other people around you aren't. Because your mind's going to be thinking one way and their mind's going to be thinking completely differently. And it's going to lead to discontentedness in the household. So if you're going to choose to have a family, I would encourage you to learn and practice the teachings very closely because then you're going to have a better household life. And then try to encourage through suggestion that your other household members learn and practice these teachings as well because that's going to lead the whole household to a, a better existence where everyone's not putting pressure on each other with expectations and wants. Everyone can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy as you learn and practice these teachings. We have a question from Uma on Facebook. She asks, changing climatic conditions due to global warming and pollution is bringing more discontentedness. More heat causes more physical irritation, bringing unrest to the mind. So in the peak of summer, how to calm the mind, sir? Meditation helps, but my mind still gets disturbed. Yeah, so this is another craving, right? Like if your body and your mind is not used to hot weather and you, the mind expects it to be this perfect temperature all the time, this is the mind having a longing and a strong eagerness for a certain type of temperature or weather. And as long as your mind craves that, has this longing and this strong eagerness for this permanent weather that you think is perfect, your mind's going to be discontent. So it's not that the environment's changing because you can't change that. You can't change the fact that weather is impermanent. You can't change that universal truth that everything is impermanent. The weather is impermanent, just like everything else. But what you have to do is you have to train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, recognizing that you're not going to have a perfect conditions of weather every single day of the week. This is an, a perfect example of a craving, how the mind thinks and has this longing, this strong eagerness, this expectation, this want for a certain type of weather. And if it's not like that, then the mind becomes frustrated or it becomes angry. 
But what you have to realize is some days it's going to be hot and you're going to sweat and other days it's going to be cold and you're going to have to find clothing to bundle up and some days the weather is going to be perfect. This is impermanence. You're never ever going to live in a world where the weather is permanent. It's not going to happen. So what you have to do is train the mind that if I'm hot and I'm sweaty for a few hours, then that's just the way it's got to be. And then later I will go home and I'll take a shower and I'll get into the air conditioning and I'll be fine. Or if you don't have air conditioning, you have to be comfortable with that. But if you allow the mind to be attached with this longing and strong eagerness for this perfect weather condition, and you think that it's supposed to always be like that, then the mind's never going to be content because it's placing its happiness, it's placing its contentedness on this particular thing. And the thing is, is that the weather has to be a certain temperature. And only when the weather is that temperature will your mind be peaceful. But the temperature can't be that all the time because of impermanence. So you have to train the mind to accept this impermanent aspect of the weather and recognize that there's going to be hot days, there's going to be cold days, there's going to be days where you feel like it's pretty good and you like this weather. That's just the nature of impermanence. And that's why you have to train the mind to be comfortable with the impermanent nature of all things, including the weather. I have a question from Messiah. She asks, do you think it follows that a person with a very big ego will have stronger or more craving? Potentially. You know, you can't really compare stronger or more craving based on any particular thing like an ego. What's most important is that you look at your mind and figure out what your cravings are and work to eliminate those and work to eliminate your ego. What somebody else is doing and what their ego is producing, you know, that's not something that you should concern yourself with because you can't change that. But somebody with ego, you're going to know that and it's not going to feel good and it's not helpful for their life. But how much craving they have versus another person, it's, it's hard to say. And we don't need to do that comparison because the goal is to eliminate craving 100%, which involves eliminating the ego 100%. So rather than trying to measure who has more or less, the goal is just to get rid of them entirely. Is it fair to say then that ego is really a product of craving? In some cases, yes. Yes, I can see that. As well as maybe unknowing of true reality. Our next chapter, 17, is on ego. We'll talk about it more there, but I wouldn't say necessarily the ego comes from craving. It actually comes from this concept of a self that the mind has. The mind has this certain concept of a self, and because of that, the ego gets bolstered more and more and more. But eventually, yeah, there is craving there because the ego craves importance. It craves significance. It, it, it wants to be important, right? It wants to show everybody how knowledgeable it is. It wants to show how intelligent it is. It wants everybody to look at it in a certain way. So by having ego, 
there's going to be craving, but not everyone with craving has ego. So if there's okay, ego, yeah. if there's ego, there's going to be craving, but you can actually eliminate the ego, but there's still craving. Yes, I think we're getting very precise with our terms here because craving, often we mean by that craving for sensual desire is a big one. But of course here we also have things like um, happiness and automobiles, which are also subject to craving. So I have a question as well, which is in the chain of dependent origination, craving and clinging are put forward as two different links in the chain. Is there any salient difference between them we should be aware of in our practice here? The words that we use in English to represent what the Buddha was talking about is we use craving, desire, attachment, expectations, wants, clinging, holding, grasping. All of these things mean the same thing, which I describe as a mental longing with a strong eagerness. Right. So all of these things mean the same thing. They're just different words. Yes, yeah, that, that, that seems very useful to me, certainly. Um, okay, so I thought I'd just relay a comment from uh, Leslie on Facebook. She says, hi there, I've never been here before. I came in when you were talking about children and I heard just what I needed to hear. I pushed my daughter away by trying to control her. Any advice for Leslie? Yeah, you know, that's a common thing that happens is, is we try to control these children because the unenlightened mind thinks that it knows best. It thinks, you know, we have this six-year-old or this 10-year-old or this 16-year-old. And because the parents are older, and we've encountered a lot of the obstacles that our children are encountering, we already know the answer. We can see 10 steps in front of our child, but our child can't see it. And the parent, because the parent is trying to protect the child and trying to make sure that they don't encounter some of the same problematic things that we encountered in life, the intention that the parent has is to help this child. And that's a really good intention to have is, is, yeah, we want to help it. But because the mind is unenlightened and there's this craving, we go about it the wrong way. What we do is we start putting expectations on our children. We start trying to control them. We start trying to force them in a certain direction. And this puts tension in the relationship. It puts tension and causes problems. And yeah, it, it can push a parent and a child away. And then it gets into a cycle where the child just continually resists what the parents are saying because the more the parents try to enforce their will on the child the more the child's going to resist because if anybody's ever tried to push you in a certain direction the first thing you do is dig your heels in and if the parent recognizes this that the child isn't going to just miraculously accept everything that we say and you realize what your real goal in life is as a parent is to lead your child towards making good decisions and you can stay unattached to what those decisions are, then your role as a parent becomes not trying to 
push or force or control and get your child to accept every last little thing you say because that's going to lead to discontentness. What your role becomes as a parent is helping them to kind of survey and look around at all the options and kind of guide them to making their own choice and learning how to make good decisions in their life. Because if you recognize impermanence, and Leslie, you haven't studied with us much, but you can. We have you know, books and podcasts and videos and these talks twice a week. You can learn more about what impermanence is. Impermanence is there's no steady or fixed state. Everything's constantly changing. This is a universal truth. If you recognize that as a parent, you are impermanent, meaning even while you're alive, you can't be with your child all the time. And then ultimately you will die and your child's gonna most likely be here without you because you'll probably die first. So in those situations where you can't be with your child all the time and you're not gonna be here permanently with your child, the best thing you can do as a parent is prepare your child to make good decisions for themselves. And you'll find better results with that where you can influence, you can encourage, you can support, you can guide, you can sit and help your child look at all the different options and then ask them, which option do you think you should choose? Which decision do you think is best? And then when they tell you what that decision is, you can say, oh, I see why you made that decision. Here are some things for you to think about if you're gonna make that decision. And here's something to think about with this decision and that decision and give them things to consider and think about and then let them step away and ultimately make their own decision. As long as their life isn't in danger based on the decision that they're making or whatever decision they're making isn't going to lead to some kind of lasting impact for them or somebody else, let them make the decision, you know, guide them with suggestions, advice, encouragement, and let them make whatever decision they're going to make and they'll see the results of that, right? Like if my son was going to try to cross the street and get creamed by a, a truck, of course, I'm going to pull his hand and yank him back. But if there's some other decision that he's making, like for example, there are some boys here in the village that my wife and I knew that if he spent time around them, it was going to be problematic. And we kind of mentioned to him two or three times that he might want to consider not spending time with these boys. But ultimately, he was making the decision to spend time with these boys. And okay, we just let him spend time with them. Well, after a few months, uh, one of the boys stole his bicycle helmet. And then two or three of the other ones kind of conspired and lied and hid it from him. And he let me know about it. And then, you know, we had to figure this out and find the helmet, which eventually they were honest and they gave it back to us. But he saw three, four, six months ago, his mom and dad advised him not to spend time with these boys. But by him not following that guidance, look at the situation he ended up in where three or four of them got together, stole his bicycle helmet. And there was a period of a few hours where he didn't have his bicycle helmet and he felt what that felt like for someone to steal from him. So rather than forcing our opinion on him and forcing him not to be around these boys and him resenting that 
and just because the fact that we are forcing him not to be with them, he's probably going to try to be around them even more because we're trying to force him not to do it. We just let him do it. And we just advised him otherwise. And then when he saw the results of it, then after we sat down and, and talked about it, I said, okay, now you see what mom and dad were talking about, right? You know, how does this feel for your friends to steal from you? You know, do you feel like they're good friends? So rather than me telling him things, I asked him questions and helped him to reflect. So I asked him, you know, how does it feel to have someone steal from you? Doesn't feel good, dad. I don't like it. Well, I know you call these guys your friends, but do you think they're friends after they stole from you? No, dad, I don't think any friends would steal from me if they're really friends. Well, what about lying? You know, they lied to you, too. How did that feel? Right. So I just kind of like helped him reflect and see based on these good, wholesome teachings that we know of the Buddha. We know that lying and stealing and things like this are going to cause problems in life. So sitting down with your children and taking the time to slow down and help them to look at the various things in their life, it becomes easier and easier because you set up this pattern of having open discussions where you help them reflect and see the various things that they're looking at. Whereas if you're constantly trying to push and force and control them, they're just going to resist it. And then that becomes the pattern that every time mom and dad suggest something, they're going to try to force it on me. I'm going to resist and I'm going to do just the opposite. And this is what some parents end up doing. And it causes problems in the relationship where if you set up a pattern of behavior that whenever there's a problem, you sit down, you talk about it, you discuss it, you give them some suggestions. Ultimately, they make the decisions on their own. And then whatever results from those decisions come back, they're coming back based on their decisions and they feel more empowered and more supported. And they're going to be a better decision maker in all parts of life if you raise your children this way. And you're going to have a better relationship because now your children are going to see you as an advisor. They're going to see you as someone who can help them in life. And they'll sometimes come to you after you establish this for a long period of time, they'll come to you and seek your advice for certain things. And they'll say, Mom, I'd like to talk to you about this because you've already got a pattern of six months, a year, two years of always providing them good advice. Then as they age, they will feel more and more comfortable to seek your advice. You want your children to step forward and see you as an advisor rather than stepping away from you because they feel like you're trying to control their life all the time. Nobody likes that. So you got to give them the freedom and the free will to make their own decisions. But then as a parent, do your role in providing them guidance and advice that you know would be helpful, but then be comfortable if they make a decision of hanging out with kids that you don't agree with. And then when something bad happens, you can sit down and help them to see how that was their decision and it led into something that was not beneficial for them. I have a question, David. So today I experienced a really extreme amount of restlessness, like a complete anomaly. Uh, and I think it has something to do with the fact that I went for a very long hike yesterday. 
which is strange because my body is very is tired. I would have thought I might be experiencing less restlessness, but actually I experienced a lot more. And it made me wonder if uh, restlessness is related to craving. What is the relationship between restlessness and craving? Uh, and how can we overcome restlessness? Yeah, what could have happened there is you went out yesterday and did some hiking and walking and the mind enjoyed that and that's a good wholesome experience but what can happen is the mind holds on right it craves permanence and just because it went out and you did something yesterday today the mind is holding on to that because it craves permanence so even though you made the conscious choice to stay home and that's what you felt was best the mind is still holding on to yesterday and that's where the restlessness can come from so yeah, restlessness comes from overactivity of the mind or a longing or craving something that it doesn't have. And restlessness is one of the higher fetters to eliminate from the mind. If the mind has peace, calm, serene, and content without craving, it won't be restless because it can just be wherever it is, whether it's sitting in a chair, whether it's on a bus, whether it's walking in the mall, no matter where it is, the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So someone who's eliminated that fetter of restlessness, the mind will be peaceful. But I think what happened with you, Max, is the mind was just holding on to what happened yesterday. And even though this is a perfect example of how you know, you're know you aware of impermanence, you know about it for over a year now, you've been practicing these teachings for a good little bit, And even though you're aware of it, the mind isn't yet fully trained. It's still in the process of doing so. And that's why even at an intellectual level, if you understand impermanence, it maybe hasn't soaked in all the way to the point where the mind's still kind of subconsciously holding on to this activity from yesterday. Yeah, that that does ring true. It felt like there was a, uh, I think because I'd had to mentally try, try quite hard yesterday, Whereas often it might be quite a nice relaxing hike, but for some reason yesterday it was very mentally difficult as well as physically. So I think restlessness is, is simply when we've just jostled the mind so much and it hasn't slowed down yet. Mm-hmm. So often we, you know, we, we want a kind of uh, give me a cure for restlessness, but actually the cure was to not shake it around in the, in the moments and days or hours leading up to the moment when you feel restless, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is, is that fair to say? Um, I'm not sure about that. I mean, restlessness can come from like what we just described. It can also just be something in the mind that the mind's thinking about. It could be kind of like, I know right now you're selling your condo, your flat, you've got some other life decisions on your mind. Oftentimes our consciousness, we are involved in certain activities, but kind of in the background, there can be this overthinking that happens that can create restlessness as well. And The good news here is that you have mindfulness, awareness of mind, that you saw it and you saw what's going on and now you're kind of looking for how to solve it. You have to look inside and see what was the mind thinking about during that time? What's the real source of this restlessness? It could be two or three or four different things that's going on in there. But if you have right mindfulness, awareness of mind, you can look inside and see what are the things that are causing this restlessness? Great stuff. Yeah, thanks a lot, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay. So 
I don't know how much you guys want to go through this list. You know, it's essentially what's in the book, but these are some potential cravings. They're not all the cravings. I mean, the mind can really crave a multitude of things. These are just some potential examples. Here you see food or eating or animal products. If the mind is craving certain foods, there can be discontentedness, right? If you really love chocolate and you eat chocolate all the time and you really crave it and then one day you come home and somebody's eating your pack of M&Ms or your, your chocolate bar, the mind can be angry and frustrated because the mind had this longing or this strong eagerness for a particular food. Or you might choose to go to a restaurant because there's a certain dish there that you really enjoy and you really like it and the mind wants it, has this longing and strong eagerness for it. And then when you get there, you realize that you know, when you go to order 15 or 20 minutes into your experience with your friends, that they don't have this dish that you like, the mind can be angry or frustrated. So the mind can actually be attached to food and certain foods and it can cause problems in your life. So you have to get to a point where you may have an objective or a goal or an interest to have a certain food. But if that's not available, the mind can be perfectly content for something else as well, that it's not holding on to this one particular food and it has this overwhelming, unquenchable thirst for this particular food. And it feels like if I just get this one dish, I'll feel so happy and so wonderful if I just get this one dish. Because when you put your happiness on this external object, your object of your desire, it's never going to be fulfilled 100% of the time. You're just setting yourself up for failure. And then likewise, if somebody has a lot of cravings for a particular food, it can lead to obesity as well, or death even, uh, if someone kind of overeats. Uh, something like happiness. And we talk about this in the book about how most people are kind of taught to go after happiness. And happiness is this particular car, this particular job, this particular income, you know, by the age of 30, you got to have this by the age of 35, you got to have that. And this is just society's way of conditioning the mind that it should have certain things, right? It's not an overt conspiracy, but it's just that because everybody's mind that isn't practicing these teachings, they're craving permanence. So people expect by the age of 25, you should have this. By 30, you should have this. By 35, you should have this. Well, if everybody conformed to that, that would be permanence. And that doesn't exist. Everybody's life is different. And if we say, okay, at 25, if you have this, then you've made it and you're successful. Now you can be happy. And then if at 30, it's this criteria and at 35, it's this criteria. If you do that to yourself and you accept what the public's saying to you, then you're going to cause yourself discontentedness because your life and your life choices doesn't conform to this pre-prescribed way of being. And if you put your happiness in all of these various things, and you allow society to tell you what your life should be at a given time, then you're going to be unhappy. You're going to be sad. You're going to feel guilty and shameful 
that you didn't attain these things. And oftentimes this can lead to suicide. People who commit suicide, they don't probably really want to die. They just want the painful feelings to stop. They want the sadness to stop. They want the despair to stop. They want the depression to stop. And they don't know how to do it. And what we have in our society today with medications and such, that doesn't do it. That doesn't stop the thoughts because there's no medication that you can take that's going to stop sadness because the sadness is caused by the craving. Because the person's craving happiness so much and then they don't get it, the mind becomes sad or the mind's craving fame. It doesn't get it, so it's sad. The mind's craving a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It doesn't get it, so it's sad. This pill isn't going to solve the craving. It's not going to eliminate this mental longing with a strong eagerness. So oftentimes when people are feeling sad, lonely, bored, depressed, guilty, shameful, they turn to what they think is a medical community that's going to somehow solve these problems with medication, but the medications can't eliminate craving. And then ultimately there's so much sadness, so much despair, so much sorrow, so much depression that people oftentimes kill themselves. And this can be from craving happiness. Again, they don't really want to die. They just want to end the painful feelings and they don't know any other way to do it. And they think the only way to end the painful feelings is to kill themselves. But if these people came in contact with the Buddhist teachings and they learn how this sadness, this frustration, this despair, this sorrow, this depression, this guilt and the shame is actually being produced by the mind and they can solve that through training, they can actually eliminate the suicidal thoughts because there's no medicine that's going to do that. This isn't a medical problem. When the mind experiences depression or sadness or anger or guilt or shame or loneliness or boredom, these aren't medical problems. These are problems with an untrained mind. And by training the mind to eliminate this mental longing with a strong eagerness, the mind will slowly, gradually become more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So craving happiness will lead to problems in your life. Some people have this overwhelming desire or craving to help the world, right? Remember, the Buddhist teachings aren't always about what's right or wrong, right? Because it's a very good intention to help the world and figure out ways to do that. That's a very good, wholesome intention to find ways to benefit other people in the world. That's a great thing. But if it's pursued as a mental longing with a strong eagerness, it's going to lead to sadness, frustration, anger, guilt, shame, loneliness, boredom, all these discontent feelings because the mind has this outward longing and this strong eagerness to do so. But if you're in the middle, you can have a goal, an objective, an interest to help the world and benefit the world, 
but do it in a way that is an objective, an interest, and a goal. Because if you're just push, 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 and you're only moving in that direction with strong eagerness, with this longing, then what can oftentimes happen is you can lack motivation because you can kind of burn yourself out. Or once you see that you have the inability to help the entire world and you can't reach to that craving and that objective that you have, then the mind can be very sad and very lonely and you can kind of ignore your own self-development. So you have to focus on your own well-being first and then pursue helping the world in a good, wholesome way without this strong eagerness and this longing. Same thing with certain job titles, right? Certain people have certain career paths that they're on and they feel like they've made their 20-year plan. You know, in five years, I need to be a manager. In 10 years, I need to be a director. In 15 years, I need to be the vice president. And then in 20 years, I need to be the CEO of this company. And the mind just pushes and pushes and pushes and pushes. And it only feels happy when it actually gets to its goal. And then once it gets to its goal, it becomes discontent and that because that wears off, that happiness wears off. So there's nothing wrong with pursuing a certain career path and looking to acquire more and more success in your life through a certain career. But if the mind has this longing and this strong eagerness for these job titles, then it's going to be discontent as this transpires. You may find yourself spending less and less time with your family, being motivated to make decisions in unwholesome ways just to get to the goal, uh, focused more on the title rather than the path to get to that. And you can create a lot of problems with your, for yourself. And we've already covered this last one, the life partner. We've already covered that, uh, talking about how having craving for a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or a wife to either have one and you don't have one can cause discontentness. Or then once you have one, if you have this longing and strong eagerness with expectations for your partner to be a certain way, you can essentially sabotage this relationship because the mind is constantly trying to control this partner. And it just leads to more and more problems in life rather than just being supportive and encouraging and walking life together we become somewhat manipulative sometimes and somewhat controlling, okay? So this is another example of some cravings that can lead to discontentness. All right, so the next one is power, right? Some people might have certain cravings for like political power or power within a community, knowing all the right people. And by knowing all the right people and having certain positions of power, that can support an ego and it can cause problems in life because you're just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing for more and more and more and more. And if you don't get it, the object of the affection of the mind, the mind's going to be discontent. And even if you do get it, it's going to be happy for a while, but then it's going to wear off. Same thing like sexual contact. We can have excessive cravings for sexual contact, which can lead to 
having sexual misconduct. We can have two, three, four, five different partners at one time, and this can be very problematic in our life. So by bringing the craving down and realizing that, okay, I can enjoy a sexual relationship. I can have a partner and enjoy a sexual relationship, and I should do that with just one partner. Whereas if you allow this excessive craving to go on, then the mind's always going to want what it doesn't have. And even you have this relationship with a sexual partner, if the mind has a certain craving, not just for excessive amount of craving, but as your partner ages and they don't look the same way they did 10 or 15 years ago, maybe the mind says, okay, I'm done with this. I need to get a younger partner. And this is where sometimes relationships can go for 10, 15, 20 years, and then eventually the mind of one partner or another is craving permanence. It has this mental longing and strong eagerness for this young looking body. And now because of that sexual craving, it gives up on this partner who's 45, 50, 60 years old and now looks for a much younger version. And it can destroy an otherwise healthy relationship where there may or may not be children, and you've had this great life together, but just because of this craving for sexual contact and having that person look a certain way, then you can actually destroy a relationship because of that. So sexual cravings are probably some of the strongest ones that we have as human beings. And we have to bring that to the middle, not allowing it to be excessive. Ultimately, to get to full enlightenment, you need to eliminate your sexual craving 100%, but you may or may not be at that point right now. So it's okay. You gradually practice, and at some point in your life, if you decide you're done with that, then you can eliminate it. And if you have a partner at that time, you might choose to talk to them, and maybe they're ready to eliminate it as well. But you choose when is that right time if you choose to go that far with these practices. But in the meantime, if you're going to maintain a sexual relationship, make sure it's in the middle where it's not excessive and it's just with one person. And that you don't make decisions motivated on that sexual craving. Sometimes when we're in a relationship, even if it's a loyal, committed relationship, we might make certain decisions just because we have that craving for sexual contact. For example, we might go out and buy our partner gifts, chocolates, flowers, clothing. We might take them to a restaurant. We might go to the movies with the expectation that at the end of all these gifts, I'm going to get what I want, which is this sexual contact. Well, that's not going to happen all the time. And if you allow your decisions to buy gifts or take somebody out to a restaurant or go to the movies. If your decisions are motivated because you want something in return, which is the sexual contact, then there's going to be discontentedness because your partner is not always going to be interested in having sexual contact at the same time as you. So if you allow this sexual contact, this craving for sexual intercourse to be a motivating factor, that I'm only going to make these decisions if I get what I want. And if you don't get what you want, your mind's going to be discontent. Then you're kind of painting yourself into a corner and you're setting yourself up to fail. 
If you're going to do things like gifts or take people out places, you need to do that because they're good, wholesome decisions and you don't want anything in return. If at the end of all that, it leads to sexual intercourse and that's interesting to you and you choose to do it, great. Okay, that's wonderful. That's where it turned out. But if it doesn't, you need to be able to be at a point with your mind that you'll be just as peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy if there is sexual contact or there isn't. And you're not going to motivate your decisions on things that you do, things that you say, your way of being, just because you want this sexual contact. Because if you allow your mind to do that, you're going to oftentimes make decisions that aren't necessarily the best decisions. And you need to train yourself that this sexual contact is maybe a nice part of life that you enjoy, but it's not the number one thing that this relationship is meant for. That this relationship can be a loving, warm, friendly, kind, respectful relationship if there is sex this week or there isn't. Because if you allow your mind to be hung up on this sex and it doesn't happen, then there's going to be discontentedness. So you can't allow the mind to latch on to sex and think that that's the only thing that's really important in this relationship and then have certain expectations in the sexual relationship, right? We have certain things that we want, certain ways we expect this person to have sexual intercourse with us. And if those things don't happen or they don't do them the way that we expect, then the mind becomes discontent and now we start looking for other partners. And again, a relationship that's otherwise very lovely, very wonderful, very supportive, just because of this sexual component, it can actually sabotage the relationship and break an otherwise really healthy relationship just because of this strong craving for sex, either to have multiple partners, have sex in a certain way, have certain frequency of sex, having a certain duration of sex, having a certain look, you know, certain clothing or certain appearance of our partner. There can be a lot of expectations around sexual contact. And be sure that if you're choosing to have sexual relationships with somebody, that it's a well-established relationship. Oftentimes, our craving for sex can not only motivate certain decisions that we make, but oftentimes we can enter into sexual relationships with people too early. And there isn't really a good foundation for a lasting relationship. And if we enter into a sexual relationship too early and there isn't a real foundation there, there can be a lot of problems that it creates in a relationship. So you want to make sure that if you're going to engage in sexual contact with people, that you have a really good relationship established on a good foundation before you actually move into this really intimate relationship where now the mind can really attach, can really latch on. I don't know if you've ever been involved where maybe you meet somebody for a few weeks or a few months and the relationship is just wonderful. But then as soon as there's sexual contact, all of a sudden everything changes. The expectations for each other change what people want from each other changes. And now because of this mental attachment, 
that was precipitated by the sexual contact, it actually sabotages the relationship. So it's important that you establish a really good foundation for the relationship and realize that when you take this step forward into sexual encounters with somebody, it's such an intimate experience that there's opportunity for the mind on both sides to latch on in ways that it didn't happen when there wasn't sexual contact as part of the relationship. So this is an area where you really wanna kind of be prepared to enter into and do it with some thought rather than just allowing the decision to have sexual contact with somebody or not be motivated by this craving because they look so beautiful, they smell so beautiful, and you just push and push and push and push in that direction, okay? Maybe I should pause here. This is usually one that people might have questions on. Yeah, good intuition there, David. We have a question from Tay on Facebook. He asks, how can I reduce craving for sexual contact? Okay, the Buddha actually gives us a meditation that we can do for eliminating sexual contact or even reducing it down. So sometimes if someone has excessive amount of partners, some people masturbate excessively or watch pornography excessively, and this can cause the mind to be discontent. So the reason why the mind has such craving for sexual encounters is one, because of our animal existences, it comes with us from the animal world. But two is we're attached to the pleasant feelings that we experience when the body has sensations of sexual contact, right? To orgasm, there's a certain pleasure involved with that and it creates a temporary pleasure in the mind. And that's kind of like an instant way to bring pleasure to the mind. But it can become very addictive, very much like a substance like cocaine or heroin or something else. Sexual contact can become very addictive. So it comes from our animal existences. We do it because it's pleasurable for us. And then we choose people to do it with based on appearance or certain qualities that we see in this person. So what the Buddha gave us in order to eliminate this and reduce it down is a meditation for sexual cravings. If you look in chapter 11 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, which is free on our Facebook group, our website, and lots of other places, in that chapter, I give you guidance about how to actually do this meditation. Essentially, what you do is you get a image of a dead body, oftentimes dissected, that you can see the ribs and the organs and the fluids and the muscle tissues and the bones, and you actually meditate with your eyes open, staring at this picture. Because the mind is attracted to another human because we see this outer layer of skin. But the Buddha says, we need to train the mind to understand the unattractiveness of the body, right? Because we see the attractiveness. We see the hair, we see the skin, we see the makeup, we see the jewelry, we see the clothing, we smell the perfumes, and the mind has a certain attraction. And that's where the sexual craving is coming from. Even when we look at pornography, there's a certain attraction to the breast or to the buttocks or 
the sexual organs or a certain shape of leg or a certain shape of the body or certain hair colors. The mind has a certain affection for this physical appearance. And what you need to do is you need to train the mind to observe the unattractiveness of the body. And the way that you do that is by getting this picture of a corpse that's dissected and you're looking at you know, a woman, for example, with a dissection all the way down, sprayed open, and you're literally looking at ribs, flesh, muscle tissue, fluids, organs, lungs, and you just sit there and you meditate over multiple, multiple sessions. And this will gradually train the mind to not be so overly craving of the physical body because you've trained the mind on the unattractiveness of the body. This will help with pornography, with masturbation, if there's excessive masturbation, with excessive cravings, with multiple partners. Really, really good one to knock down the craving. And you can decide how far to go with that. Some people decide to extinguish their sexual craving all the way, where they no longer have sexual contact at all, and they practice celibacy. Other people just decide to bring it down to kind of a manageable craving, where they can have a good healthy, wholesome sexual relationship with one partner. And if that's where you are in your life, then that can be the middle for you at this particular time. But either way, the way to do it is with this meditation in chapter 11. I have a follow-up from Tay. He asks, why do some people prefer homosexual relationships? It's just the way that the mind works. Um, some of us are attracted to females. Some of us are attracted to males. Some people, not necessarily any one particular gender. Some people like both sexes. There's nothing wrong with somebody who is attracted to a man or a female and happens to be the same gender. If you understand the cycle of rebirth in that we've all been multiple genders in our previous lives. When I was a lizard, I was a, a woman. When I was a goat, I was a man. When I was a bat, I was a man and I liked men whatever, right? So we've been all these countless births. And then now we land in, in this human body. The mind and the body may not have the same gender identification. The mind may identify with female qualities, but the body has male sexual organs. That's normal. It's completely normal. And there's nothing wrong with a man who has physical body as a man who prefers another man for sexual relationship. That's not a problem. That's normal. The problem in society is that some people's mind craves permanence. They think that every single man should prefer a woman as a partner. And they think that every single person who's born into a female body should prefer a male partner. This is the mind craving permanence. And people who think that that's the way the world works, then they don't understand impermanence. They don't understand that every single female is not going to prefer to be with a man. And every single man is not going to prefer to be with a female. There's going to be different variations. And that's impermanence. That's the universal truth. So the problem isn't the fact that a man enjoys being with another man or a woman enjoys being with another woman. The problem is 
society is trying to put pressure on some of these people and try to influence them that they shouldn't have these feelings and that every man has to be with a woman and every woman has to be with a man. That's the real problem is that people are putting their expectations, their longing, their craving, their desire, their strong eagerness to see every man with a woman and every woman with a man. That's the problem that the Buddha discovered is the craving is the problem. And that's why this particular issue causes so much discontentedness in certain societies. Whereas if everybody just went around the world not putting expectations on others, you want to be with a man, be with a man. If you want to be with a woman, be with a woman. It's up to you. If you want to be with a man and a woman and you're bisexual, up to you. That's your choice. There's nothing in this world that we should impose our expectations on other people. Whatever makes them feel good and they enjoy, it's their life. So that's the way to practice. And if the entire world practiced this way, this particular issue around same-sex relationships, it wouldn't be so contentious in the world. But slowly the world is waking up to the understanding that same-sex relationships cause no harm whatsoever. If Max choose to be with a, a man and he has a boyfriend and they have a great life together, or even if they don't have a great life together, even if they're arguing and have trouble sometimes, that's between Max and his partner, has no impact on me. And if Max decides to be with a woman someday, that's Max's choice. There is nothing in this world that my expectations should be imposed on Max. So it's completely normal that people prefer different genders. That's impermanence. It's a universal truth. It's never going to change. During the Buddha's life and before the Buddha's life, there were people who preferred same-sex relationships. Today, there's people who prefer same-sex relationships. Tomorrow and the next day and the next day, it's always going to be like that. There's never going to be a time where all women are with only men or all men are with only women. That's permanence and it doesn't exist in this world. And everybody just needs to wake up to the reality throughout the world that this is never going to be the case. And if Bob decides to be with Robert, that has no impact on me whatsoever. And if Susie decides to be with Barbara, that has no impact on me whatsoever. That's their life. So people just need to let go of this craving, this longing, this strong eagerness to have things a certain way in the world and just focus on their own life and finding their own peaceful, content life. So we have a couple of questions now about craving more generally. Randall on Zoom asks, I'd like to have an uncluttered house, but unfortunately my partner has a hard time parting with old household goods that we don't use anymore. I suspect there's a bit of craving happening on both of our parts, hers to keep her possessions and mine to get rid of the old junk. Any advice on how I can navigate this sort of situation? Very wise thinking there that you identify that your partner is craving to keep things and you're craving to let things go. 
that's very, very wise of you. Instead of just looking at it as it's her problem because she's trying to keep too many stuff. So that shows a mind that is looking at your own mind and seeing that you're just as much a part of the problem as maybe somebody else. So what you guys have to do is find the middle, right? You want to get rid of the junk. She wants to keep it or not junk, but her possessions or whatever she's she's keeping. You guys have to find the middle and wherever that contentness is. There's lots of different solutions that you might want to think about. Maybe there's a certain room in the house that she, that's her room and she gets to keep whatever she wants in there and you never go in that room and she gets to enjoy it as much as she like or a certain place on the property or something like this because I can tell you that you're probably not going to go to where she is and she's not going to go to where you are. So you got to find the middle. And I think it's really wise for you to see that your mind is craving something and so is hers. So you got to find that middle and sitting down and talking with her and helping her to see that you identify that this is just as much a problem on your side and see if she sees it as a problem on her side and find out where that middle is and then be willing to know that that's going to change as time goes on. Cohabitating with people, not only do you need to have really good conversations with things like possessions, but also certain tasks, right? Like in our household, I'll do anything in the house. I don't like to wash dishes for some reason. I don't know why. I, I just don't like to wash dishes. I'll wash them and I have washed dishes before and I've done it plenty of times. But for some reason, I just don't like to wash dishes. And my wife and I, we've been together 12, 13, 14 years now. And she knows that. And she just washes the dishes, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time. But then for me, you know, I like driving and she doesn't really like to drive that much. So I drive and she does that. And we've kind of over the 13, 14 years that we've been together, we kind of have our way of doing things. And I kind of know what she likes and I like and we kind of match on those kind of things. So not only is it with possessions that you need to have this good open dialogue with your partner on, but with other things, too, like household chores and picking up children or taking children to school and different events. You got to have really good open communication where you're not attached to having things a certain way. If you enter into this conversation with your partner without any expectations of what the outcome might be and without the expectation that there's this perfect middle if you enter into the conversation without that expectation then you can find the middle because the middle might be that she gets 70 or 80 percent of what she is interested in this particular situation and you can be completely comfortable with that or maybe the middle is you get 70 or 80 percent of what you want in this situation it doesn't mean that there's this perfect middle that my wife washes the dishes 50% of the time and I wash the dishes 50% of the time. That's not necessarily what the middle is in all situations. But by having an open conversation where neither side is attached, neither side has a strong longing with an eagerness, neither side is pushing each other or controlling each other, neither side has certain expectations, but you talk and discuss and you come to a certain conclusion on your own. And every time you do that, you'll just get better and better at doing that. 
and the whole dishes thing in our household is kind of like a joke now. So every once in a while, I will wash the dishes and I tell my wife like, oh, I think it's going to have a really bad thunderstorm tonight because I decided to wash the dishes. And she's like, oh, serious? Like there's going to be a thunderstorm? Wow, for sure. If you wash the dishes. So it becomes kind of like a funny joke. And my wife has never put pressure on me to try to force me into washing the dishes because she just knows that that's not going to work. And we've just been able to find what makes sense in our life. And you need to do this on lots of different subjects when you're cohabitating with somebody because there's lots of different tasks around the house and lots of different possessions. So there's lots of opportunity for either party's mind to get attached or crave or have this mental longing with a strong eagerness. So you need to have these very open conversations where at the end, both people can walk away feeling good and you're not arguing over who should wash the dishes and who shouldn't, but you're having a discussion over how this can best work out together with each other. And then of course, there's times where my wife leaves for three months and goes to America and I wash the dishes all the time because my son's only seven and a half, he's not washing dishes yet. But as soon as he gets old enough, I'm gonna train him to wash dishes, right? So you've gotta find the middle and then know that that middle is going to change and you need to kind of ebb and flow with it. That's why you can't latch onto it and expect it to be a certain way all the time. We have a question from Marcus. He asks, could you define for us laying down the burden? Yeah, so the Buddha uses this term laying down the burden or laying down the stress. So if you're carrying around attachment, if you're having this mental longing in this strong eagerness and you want things a certain way and you have certain expectations and you're trying to control things to be a certain way and you feel like that's what it's going to take in order for your mind to have this permanent happiness, which is a false reality, it's not true. But if you walk around with this expectation, this controlling, this longing, this strong eagerness, you're carrying a very heavy burden because now everything has to be perfect and it has to be to your liking. And this is a very heavy burden to carry, to walk into your house and expect things to be a certain way. And if it's not, you get angry or frustrated or you go into work and everything has to be a certain way. And if it's not that way, you get angry and frustrated. That's a very big burden to carry. And that burden creates anger, frustration, resentment, all kinds of problems. But when you let go of the craving, when you train the mind not to have this strong eagerness, this longing, then you're laying down the burden. You're laying down the burden of having to carry this craving, desire, attachment, this longing and strong eagerness where you can just be comfortable with anything. If I walk in and my wife hasn't washed the dishes, I guess I gotta wash the dishes. I need a bowl. I need some silverware. I guess I need to wash the dishes. Rather than going to find her and arguing and why didn't you wash the dishes? We had an agreement. You said you were going to wash the dishes and now I don't have a plate to eat on. How dare you break our agreement like this? 
that is a very heavy burden to carry and it's going to have all kinds of unwholesome results. So by you eliminating the craving, this mental longing and strong eagerness, you will lay down the burden and you will find that your mind will be peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy because the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy no matter what happens. No matter what happens in life, you can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Your mind isn't attached or expecting or having this mental longing with a strong eagerness for things to be a certain way. And when you train it this way, you will lay down the burden. And this is the enlightened mind. And this is why when you attain enlightenment, the body feels very light. You've probably experienced situations where you've had a very hectic day, a very heavy day, lots of different decisions that you're making, lots of problems that you're encountering. And by the end of the day, the body feels like it's been through a tornado. It's been tortured. There's aches and pains and heaviness in different parts of the body. That's the burden that you're carrying from the mind. When the mind has this craving, this desire, this attachment, these expectations, this once, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, it puts a burden on the body that it feels very heavy and very burdened. But when you let go of those cravings, desires, attachment, expectations, once, and you start pursuing things as objectives and goals and interests, you don't have that burden to carry and the body becomes very light and you don't experience that overwhelming tiredness. Like sometimes the feet in the unenlightened state feel very heavy, like you couldn't even take another step if your life depended on it, or you get all this heaviness across your shoulders or your neck. This is all from the mind. It's all being produced by the mind. So the more you learn and practice these teachings, gradually, you can let these cravings go in the mind, pursue things as an objective, a goal, and an interest, and you will lay down the burden. So speaking of permanent happiness, you mentioned earlier, Hattay asks, how can I find my own happiness? The goal to find happiness is not pursue happiness. That's the goal. If you constantly are pursuing happiness, you're going to always be unhappy. It's just the way it is. Because pursuing happiness is to latch on to these various cravings and think that if you just get this one thing, the mind's going to be happy. So if you're pursuing happiness, you're going to be unhappy. What you need to do is you need to learn the teachings of the Buddha and practice those so that you can attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. That's the goal. Everybody needs to shift instead of pursuing happiness, this temporary feeling that always fades and is never permanent. Don't pursue that. Pursue this permanent peace, calm, serene, content mind with joy through learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha. Learning the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the three poisons, understanding the natural law of gamma, understanding how to create merit, 
understanding breathing mindfulness meditation, practicing generosity, loving kindness meditation, practicing loving kindness, developing wisdom, eliminating the ego, eliminating the self, all of these different topics that we are teaching in this program, you need to learn all of this stuff and put it into practice. It's not going to click in just one session or two sessions or three sessions. There's no miraculous pill that you're going to take or no miraculous meditation that you're going to do just one time that's going to instantly create this enlightened mind of peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's a gradual, steady, consistent pursuit of attaining this mental state. So the problem is this mental longing with a strong eagerness. The solution is breathing mindfulness meditation while practicing generosity. These are the two solutions that Gautama Buddha gave us. So you need to have a steady, dedicated, consistent practice of breathing mindfulness meditation at least once, twice, or three times a day. You need to be doing that regularly every single day. You need to practice generosity, sharing your time, your effort, your resources, sharing with people, training the mind to let go so it doesn't hold on to this mental longing with a strong eagerness. What breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity are doing is it's training the mind to let go because what the mind wants to do with this craving, desire, attachment is it wants to hold on. This mental longing with a strong eagerness, it's trying to hold on and it's expecting everything to be permanent. And when it's not, that's what's causing the discontent mind. So to transform that, breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity are the solution. But you can't just do breathing mindfulness meditation only and just practice generosity only. There's a lot of other teachings that you need to learn in order to get to this enlightened mental state. So this path to enlightenment, it's a path and there's lots of decisions that you need to make along the way. But if you want to get to a permanent mind where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, the Buddha lays out that path. This book gives that to you. And all the teaching that I share through the podcast, the YouTube channel, these online classes are all ways that you can learn this and then apply it in your life and see that it works. That's the beauty in Gautama Buddha's teachings is you see your mind gradually improving piece by piece, day by day, week by week. It's not based on belief. So stop trying to pursue happiness. It's not a realistic goal. But you can pursue a permanent mind that's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy through these teachings. So I have a question, David. So you, you've been very generous to all of us here by offering these teachings week in, week out. And I know that uh, I've benefited hugely from your help, as have many others, although I won't speak for others, but um, I know I'm not alone. Uh, so I'd like to ask, you know, what support do you need in order to keep offering these teachings and doing the work you do? Well, you're right. I, I do offer these teachings based on generosity. I share about 80 hours plus per week, whether I'm teaching online, editing videos, editing podcasts, 
teaching online, teaching in person, answering questions on Facebook. It's about 80 hours plus a week that I do this. And that's my way of giving to people and, and sharing generosity, time and effort. To do this, it requires certain resources, you know, computers, microphones, lights. I need food, water, a little bit of clothing, things like this. I have to pay for website hosting and podcast and the Zoom membership and all of these things. So while I offer these teachings freely, it's not free for me to, to do this because I need to sustain my life. So the only thing that I can really use is if people have time and effort to help me to, to share, share posts, share that we're actually offering these teachings. If people are able to share money to help me to pay for things that I need in my life, like a little bit of food, water, a little bit of clothing. I'm in a very fortunate situation. Earlier in my life, I was a business person and I made a good amount of money. So things like my house are already paid for. I don't own any car. I don't go out and do anything. I just focus on sharing the teachings of the Buddha with all the various people that choose to, to come and learn. So I've brought my expenses down dramatically in terms of my living expenses. I probably live off of about maybe $300 a month is all that it takes for me to, to exist in life. But all these other expenses that I have, there's money that's needed for the website hosting, for things like the Zoom membership and all of these other things. So typically what happens is students of a teacher are going to make regular offerings to support that teacher to take care of a little bit of clothing and food and water and any resources they need in order to support their teachings. So if people were interested in making donations of their time, their effort, I have various little projects that they could help me with and they can just message me and let me know that they're have some time and they'd be willing to help me with some of these smaller projects. Or if somebody has a little bit of money, whether it's five, 10, 20, however many dollars a month that they could maybe contribute through Patreon or PayPal, this would allow me to pay for the expenses that I need in order to just basic necessities to sustain life, as well as pay for the expenses to host these teachings in the various platforms that I host the teachings. Right now, I'm covering about 9 or 10% of the expenses that I have incurred in order to host these teachings. So all the expenses I have in a given month, the donations that I receive cover about 9 or 10% of those expenses. Currently, I'm still working on the side, just making a little bit of money here and there to cover the other expenses. But my real goal is that hopefully students will find enough value in what I'm offering and what I'm sharing that more and more they will make donations to be able to help me to pay for the various things that I need to pay for to continue to offer these teachings where I won't have to go out and do this other work that I can just focus solely on sharing the teachings in all the different ways that I do. So if you go to Patreon, there's a goal set up there where it shows you how close we are to the goal. 
and I think I'm about nine or ten percent of the way. And one of the beauties about having been a business person before and having things paid for, like my house, and not having a car, not having expenses, not living any kind of lavish lifestyle, and being in Thailand is a very small amount of money goes a really far way here in Thailand. So for example, like $10 here in Thailand pays for like three meals for me. If somebody donated like $10 a month, it would be like giving me three meals a day, where if I still lived in America, that might be kind of like one meal a day. So by me having situated my life the way that I have, by wearing very simple clothes, by living in a house that is already paid for, by my wife still working and us being able to live here in Thailand at a very low cost, it doesn't take many donations for me to get to the point where all of our costs are covered and I can be able to do this more and more full time with all of you. But it would need the students to be able to make offerings and see this as something that they feel they're getting benefit from and choose to make donations on a regular basis. Yes, I think you're in a very unique uh, position to help really because you have this lay life, you're very experienced in lay life, and yet you've configured your life in such a way that your needs are relatively low. You're not living a typical lay lifestyle. So a small amount of money can go a very long way in supporting these teachings in this case. Uh, I mean, your, your needs aren't really much more than a monk's needs, you know, talking um, basics really because your, your, your house is paid for and I, I know because I know you um, that there isn't much more you'd be interested in doing other than helping people with these teachings. So, so any anything that's contributed goes directly towards that, and uh, I, I've chosen to contribute for that reason, and also because practicing generosity is is also good for one's own practice and eliminating that craving to to resources to funds. So, there's a double benefit there. Uh, so thank you, David. And I would like to encourage anyone who is practicing and who has uh, or is experiencing benefits in these teachings, head over to Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com slash support Buddha is probably the best way to donate if, if that's what you're thinking of doing. Thanks again. Yeah, just to add to that, you know, Max, at one time in my life, you know, my company's made a million dollars a year. You know, I've driven the BMWs. I've had a Mercedes. I had expensive cars. At one point in my life, I had a, a second house with a swimming pool and two different villas. I had a team of bodyguards of like three to six different people based on the type of work that I was in at that particular time. I went out to expensive restaurants with lots of people all the time and I did all of that stuff, and two years ago, as I started moving in this direction, I got rid of everything. You know, I even had five or eight different motorcycles. I sold all the motorcycles. I, I sold all the cars, the trucks, the, got rid of the house, um, got rid of the craving and desire to even wear fancy clothes. You know, I used to wear clothing that shirt, pants, shoes, everything was probably a thousand, two thousand dollars, just one outfit. 
now I wear clothing that costs $10, right? So just by eliminating these cravings of a certain lifestyle, I've been able to work myself into a situation where I need very little to sustain my life. And even someday, if the donations exceeded what I actually needed to sustain my life, I would find useful causes to give that money away to. I have no interest in stacking up a bank account. I have no interest in having a Mercedes. I have no interest in uh, going to fancy restaurants and wearing fancy clothes and all of this stuff. All of those cravings have been extinguished you know, a long time ago. So any donations that are sent to me I'm figuring out how to best use that money in order to benefit the people that I support through these teachings. And I actually have noticed that I spend more time trying to figure out how to best use that money than I did when I used to make my money myself. When I used to make money myself and I was spending the money that I made on the things I used to just blow money like crazy. I mean, I was used to spend money all the time and I would buy anything and jump into any situation and just blow money. But now when people make a donation to me, I feel like I have an obligation to the person who's making this donation, whether it's $5 or $20 or $50 or two or $300. I have an obligation to this person because they worked really hard for this money and they're entrusting in me through this donation that this money is going to go somewhere that's going to be really beneficial and help a lot of people. So I take a lot of care and concern to make sure that these donations that I get go to places that can be very beneficial. And someday, should I ever exceed the goal of what it costs me to sustain my life and all these resources that I share, I would give that money to charity and find different ways to use that money beneficially. In fact, yesterday, my son and I, we were in the city and we saw a bunch of people collecting and I think they might be some poor people that don't have money to buy food because their work is gone because of COVID-19. And even with the little bit of donations that I get now, I was talking to my son and my wife about how we can maybe shave some of that off and help these people to get some food because we have enough food for what we have in our house. So any donation that you offer me, I take a very high responsibility that that hard-earned money that you give me goes to efforts like creating an audiobook or hosting a website or purchasing Zoom memberships and other things even more so than I ever did with my own money. I really take care to make sure that it has the most impact in the most ways possible. Because I think that's the best way that I can honor your donation and show my appreciation is by making sure that money gets put to really good use. It's interesting to to go to somewhere like Thailand where generosity is practiced so um, pervasively compared to maybe to, to the West where it's, it's not so culturally encouraged and it makes a huge difference to the mood of the place you know whether you're buying uh, bananas from a a fruit stall by the side of the road you know you pay for five and the the lady puts number six in there just says you know please have it for free it's on Mm -hmm. it's on me it's just you can't go a day without seeing generosity in thailand actually it's uh 
it contributes a lot to the mood and so like I said I, I think the simple act of giving it does wonders for one's own practice in a sense the the amount is not really the point there it's it's, it's first and foremost about eliminating one's own craving exactly getting off zero in off zero giving something that you didn't have to give is an incredibly powerful act for one's own practice and then think how can i best help what is most useful here but the difference between zero and some is is a great step to make well that that's kind of what happens right is the mind has this concept of a self it becomes very selfish. We have this craving, this desire to hold on to things. And we think that if we let this little bit go, whether it's our time, our effort, our resources or whatever, we feel like if we let this little bit go, that somehow we're going to have less, right? Like we feel like we have to hold on to this little extra bit and that's somehow going to make the mind more happy. If my bank account has X or you know, I wear these certain clothes, this mind's going to somehow be happy. And in the West, we used to have a baker's dozen, right? Like you would have a baker's dozen and people used to be more generous when we were in earlier times in the West. But the mind, when it starts craving and craving and desiring and desiring and longing and all this strong eagerness, the mind just wants to hold on and it becomes very tense and by letting go of our time and our effort and our resources and find that middle, you actually train the mind to let go of these thoughts and these ideas and not to hold everything so tightly. In a country like Thailand, where it's probably considered one of the poorer countries in the world in terms of monetary wealth, you see the most generous people that you'll ever come in contact with. Like Max is saying, you know, when you sit down at a restaurant or you go to a street vendor, people are always giving you extra. They're never without. Here in Thailand, I imagine there's people that die of hunger, but I don't see it anywhere because the Thai people are always so generous. They're always giving. And by giving and sharing with other people, you have so much more in life. You know, we think in this independent culture of the West, the more that we hold on to and the more bank account we have, the more security that we have. But in reality, that actually isolates us because we're just selfishly gathering these resources for ourselves. But what I observe in Thailand is the more that they share, the more wealth that they have. When COVID-19 first hit and restaurants closed and the economy started crashing and so forth, all over the news, you know, we were seeing villages, you know, 20, 30, 100 people coming together in villages, just cooking enormous pots of food and making sure that everybody in the village has food, right? This is the Thai way that by taking care of others, you're always wealthy, you're always helping others, and it's going to help you too. So the more that we can practice this in the West, of sharing with people, giving our time, our effort, our resources, even just giving a smile. Sometimes people don't even want to give a smile in our culture. Even just doing that, you know, it just really helps to create an environment of people sharing, 
and coexisting peacefully with each other and not being so selfish and having desires to hold on to things. Because the more we hold on, the tighter we grasp, the tighter we hold, the more discontent the mind's going to be. And this is the problem that the Buddha discovered. So by letting go and training the mind to share, you will discover that the mind will be more and more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Okay. We have a comment from Manal on Facebook. She says she thinks about it also as paying, paying forward the teaching beyond just herself so that many others may also receive the invaluable words and wisdom. That's an important aspect because the only reason why we have the Buddhist teachings today, 2,500 years later, is because for 2,500 years, people have been making donations to people like me and others to share the teachings. And that's the reason why you have the teachings now is because for 2,500 years, people have been paying it forward. And, you know, you may choose to study with me for two, three, four, five years, what have you. And maybe one day you'll attain enlightenment and you won't need to study with me anymore. But the donations that you're making now are going to help the students that come learn with me 8, 10, 15, 20 years from now. It's sustaining my life and sustaining these resources where it's helping those people that are yet to come. People that haven't even been born yet because I'm 45 years old, almost 46 years old. I'm going to be teaching for another 40, 45 years. So there's people that haven't even been born yet. They're going to end up being students of mine at some point in the future. And yes, your donations of time, effort, and money will help people now, and it will help people in the future as well. So I sent out a post recently just to thank all of you guys for your donations. It's really appreciated with lots of gratitude for any donations that you make, because this does help me to help you and help others. Great stuff. Okay, so we have no more questions, David. Okay, so I guess I'll just end it there with an appreciation and gratitude for you all continuing to learn and practice these teachings for continuing to decide that this is something that is worthwhile for your life, that learning and practicing these teachings and seeing the improvements in your life is something that you're choosing to do. Nobody's forcing you. Nobody has expectations of you. Nobody's trying to control you and make you learn these teachings. This is your personal choice to learn and practice the teachings. I have no expectations of you in terms of you have to donate this or you have to do this or you have to learn this or, or you have to come to class every session. Those are all personal choices that you're making. But by making those personal choices to pick up the book, to sit down and meditate, to listen to a podcast, to make a donation, to come to class, all of these good, wholesome decisions that you're making, you should see the mind gradually improving and the condition of the mind getting better and better and better. And that's how you'll know that you're learning the truth and you're practicing the truth because the condition of the mind is continuing to improve more and more. And for that, I'm very appreciative. I have a lot of gratitude because I live in the same world as you. 
And by you learning and practicing these teachings, it benefits you, it benefits all the people around you, and it benefits all of humanity. And the more and more people in the world that learn and practice these teachings, the world is just going to become a more peaceful, calm, serene, and content place where there's lots of joy. It's going to take many generations for these teachings to spread all throughout the world, but it all starts with you. And if you can improve your learning, improve your practice, improve the condition of your mind, then it's going to spread to the people around you and beyond. So all you have to do is focus on your own mind. Don't be worried about so many other people, what they are doing or what they aren't doing. Just focus on your own learning and your own practice. Slowly over time, these teachings will spread more and more to the entire world. But the more you focus on your practice, your life will improve because the condition of your mind is going to improve. Everything is experienced through the mind. So if you train the mind in this way that the Buddha taught, all your life experiences are going to be better and better and better. So until next time, have a very wonderful rest of your day, and we'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.